Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Benjamin Cavill, showrunner and executive producer of a new adaptation of Stephen King apocalyptic novel The Stand for US streamer CBS All Access and television writer Lisa Holdsworth, chair of the Writers Guild of Great Britain. Stephen King's novel The Stand tells the story of an epic battle between good and evil set in the aftermath of a devastating plague that wipes out all but a handful of survivors from the face of the earth. The thousand-page tome has been adapted as a limited series for US streamer CBS All Access, starring Whoopi Goldberg, Alexander Skarsgård and James Marsden, and debuted just before Christmas. Showrunner Benjamin Cavill spoke to Michael Pickard about developing the drama before the COVID-19 pandemic struck, and how the themes it explores prove prescient, as well as how the author himself was involved in the project. Uh, well, I'm Ben Cavell. I'm the uh, the showrunner, co-developer of The Stand limited series on CBS All Access. As you know, it's quite a big story, but essentially, uh, you know, The Stand, I, it's funny because I, I tend to go out of my way to say, as I genuinely believe, that The Stand isn't a book about a global pandemic, which really it's not. It does contain a global pandemic. There is a global pandemic in it, but it's really just sort of a mechanism to get the world to the point where there is there is a, a kind of ultimate showdown between I, I also resist using the terms good and evil, but there there is an ultimate showdown between two sides, which I suppose could be considered the light and the dark, but there's the dark man, Randall Flagg, versus the side of light led by Mother Abigail. And, you know, essentially it's it's a battle between two sort of competing visions for what the future of humanity might look like in the wake of this collapse brought about by obviously this terrible fictional plague called Captain Trips. Yeah, and and obviously it's, it's based on a Stephen King novel. So I mean, just take us back to the beginning and what was your maybe introduction to the novel or, or King himself as a writer, and and how did you decide that hey, this could be a TV show? Right. Well, I I mean, my introduction to the novel, I suppose, was when I was a a kid, and and that was my introduction to to Stephen King too. I mean, I I think I don't know. Has is there anybody who's been more influential on my generation of storytellers than Stephen King? I, I don't think so. Certainly not of American storytellers or, or even English language storytellers. I mean, I feel like we've all grown up on his work and on adaptations of his work. But so the the stand in terms of in terms of adapting it as a limited series. Julie McNamara, who's the head of CBS All Access, approached me uh, in early 2018 to ask if I'd be interested in coming to do this. And, you know, it's funny, obviously, you know, in the two years we spent making it, uh, and especially as our production was getting toward the end, and we, you know, we started to realize that the story had more kind of literal relevance because it featured a pandemic than than we could ever have imagined. But honestly, in, in early 2018, when and when Julie McNamara first approached me, I, I thought that the book was sort of eerily relevant even then, um, you know, having obviously nothing to do with a pandemic, but just because, you know, for me, again, the, the book is really about, you know, this this question of how how one, how these characters, but how how you, reader, would essentially reboot humanity if 
if given the chance. I mean, not not that you've chosen to be put in that position, but given that you are one of the people who's now responsible for essentially reconstituting human civilization, how how would you build it back? You know, what what if you could press the reset button on humanity? Would you build the same way that we did before and, you know, essentially set yourself up for some of the same problems or probably set yourself up for some of the same problems? Or would you take a, a different approach? I, it, it just seemed to me that even in, in early 2018, just the whole world, but certainly the United States, uh, in the United States, people had come to start to question things that we'd just always taken for granted about the structure of democracy, about the structure of, I mean, you know, a, a kind of democratic egalitarian society, you know, what, what, what does society owe the individual? What does the individual owe to society? You know, these very fundamental questions about the state of nature and the nature of government that, you know, I think somehow were more on the surface for people in the last few years than, than they'd ever been in my lifetime, certainly. Uh, so for me, that's that was why I wanted to be part of the show and why, you know, why I felt like this was the perfect time for it. And then obviously events kind of, yes, uh, conspired to make it sort of, I don't know, more creepily or, or eerily uh, relevant. But yes, th- thematically, I just thought it was already so kind of perfectly in the pocket for all of the things we were talking about already. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess it's unfortunate timing from the pandemic sort of point of view. But I mean, that, you're right in saying it's that's certainly not the story, is it? It's, that's not the whole story in any No, it, it's certainly not the whole story of the book. It's not why we, you know, decided to, to tell the story of the book. And I don't look, hey, is it any more unfortunate timing than I mean, the, the pandemic itself is so I, unfortunate, it doesn't even begin to cover it. It's so terrible and, and horrifying and unfortunate. But yeah, so I, you know, if, if it if it makes people I don't know if it makes people more able to escape into our show because, you know, you see a much worse pandemic. I mean, Stephen King has been pretty uh, emphatic and and public about the idea that, you know, Captain Trips and COVID are not the same. I mean, Captain Trips, A, is a fictional uh, man-made disease and it's much deadlier and it's much more horrifying. And, and that's not to at all minimize the horror that we're currently going through. But, you know, the Captain Trips exists in the book as a, as a mechanism mechanism to sort of clear out the world or certainly clear out the United States so that so that King can do his Lord of the Rings in modern day America, which he's, you know, he's been very upfront about the idea that that was sort of one of the germs of the book for him, you know, and and in order for the characters to be able to walk to Mordor, you got to empty out the country in between where they are and where they're going. So there's Captain Tripp. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think he's, you know, if you read about the book, he's very vocal in the fact that he's been a long time wanting to write something like, you know, Lord of the Rings, an epic right. fantasy story. And and this was, this was what it, it turned out to be, The Stand. Um, I mean, tell us a bit about how you've developed it with CBS and and you know that partnership between you and the showrunner and and this big book in the middle how did you kind of approach first approach the story and, and breaking it down into a limited series well I look I frankly CBS and all access has been just wonderful in terms of their trust in us and their sort of support of whatever way we we chose to 
to tell the story. Um, you know, it it just it seemed very clear to me that that we needed to do a, a non-linear version. That you know, the the book is obviously linear time wise, and uh, as is the original adaptation. And in part to to set ourselves apart, I suppose. But more to the point, I never felt that we needed to make the audience sit through kind of three episodes or whatever of the world deteriorating before we got to the meat of our story. I mean, as I said before, you know, the pandemic is really not what the book's about. You know, the book is really about what comes after. And so it just it just seemed clear, I think, from the very beginning that we needed to we needed to sort of start from moment one announcing this is what the, you know, we're going to show you some of how we got here and and how the people in our story are sort of, you know, formed by some of the events that take place as the, you know, as the pandemic is spreading and and they're starting to realize what's going on, but that the the real story and the real conflict in the story and the real kind of dark versus light, dark man versus Mother Abby, I mean, that that's, that's what we're really telling and that is the aftermath. Uh, you know, that, that stuff like Contagion and uh, Outbreak, and I mean, there have been these great movies about plagues and pandemics and whatever, but that's really not what we were doing. We had to have some of that, no question, and I'm very proud of the way we handle it. But so from the beginning, the kind of nonlinear storytelling was was a big part of how we approached it. And then also, you know, we wanted to be, at the same time that we wanted to be really faithful to the source material because it's so iconic and we all love it so much. We also wanted to, I don't know, do justice to it by updating it properly for 2020. You know, it, it's it's not 1978 anymore, which is when that book was written. And, and there are a lot of ways in which 2020 America just doesn't look the way it did in 1978. And one of those, one of those ways is that the book is very white and very male in terms of its protagonists, you know, in terms of the enormous number of central characters, you know, the vast majority of them are, are white and male. And that just didn't feel kind of honest to us about where America is now as opposed to 40 years ago. Not that 40 years ago, it was completely white and male, but it felt like if if we're going to update it and make it relevant for this moment in time, that we had to, you know, take a different approach to all of that. No, I've, I mean, I've seen the first two episodes and it's, it's you know, we, we do start with obviously the, the pandemic and, and it seems to be very much um, about, I guess, like a chess game you know putting pieces into the places that you need them for this epic sort of battle to take place and and you mentioned that you know that i guess the two main characters mother abigail and, and randall flag they're very only very much teased i guess in those first couple of, of episodes and then it's only at the, the end of episode two we start to see more of the antagonist randall as he kind of i guess builds his starts to build his own army H- how did you want to introduce those characters because i i guess we'll see more of them as the show goes on but to not yes. have them front and center straight away it was obviously an interesting choice. Well, thank you. Um, I, you know, the the thing that we always said to each other um, throughout, or I, you know, certainly my approach to it, and and uh, Taylor Elmore, who is a, another executive producer who I brought on to to help me shepherd this through production. You know, we we said to each other all the time that Flag is the shark in Jaws, essentially. That you know, really, the less you see of him, the more he maintains his his power, and the the more you can kind of build him up. I mean, I, it was also, it was very important to us that, again, I, the, my reluctance to use the terms good and evil, it was very, it was very important to us that, well, that A, the people who follow Flag not seem to just be evil, that they have 
reasons for following him that we as an audience can completely understand. And it's not just because he looks like Alexander Skarsgård and he has that, you know, that easy charm and charisma, although that's certainly part of it, but that, that, well, first of all, that in the midst of this chaos that they're all living through, he is offering at least the appearance of somebody who, who has a handle on what's going on, sort of seems to know what it's all for and where it's all headed. And of course, he has supernatural powers. I mean, I, you know, if the world is in chaos and you meet somebody who is beautiful and charming and can levitate, I, I don't know how you really justify not following that person. I mean, I suppose you do. And, you know, when you see that morally they are completely out of line with what you believe is is right and just, well, then I, I suppose it takes a lot to stand up to them. And that's what the book is about. But yes, it was very important to us as we were building those two characters that, you know, that flag really, that, that he really seemed like a viable alternative in some way. I mean, I I, I don't want to go too far with it, but that, that he be, well, and and that Vegas itself, you know, was also we spent a lot, a lot of time figuring out how that society and and Boulder too, frankly, but but how that society in Vegas would work, how it would be stratified, but how they would go about making things run. You know, I, that that the appeal of flag really, I don't know, be our opportunity to explore the appeal of the authoritarian. That it's not just about threatening people into liking you or following you, but that you're 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 offering something tangible that that you are at least telling people you have a handle on this you're going to make things run properly they're not going to have to deal with the chaos that they've been experiencing outside that you're really offering them protection and safety and making them feel that they now have something to belong to again in a sort of world where everything's collapsed and and also our approach to the two of them to to mother abigail and flag was that that they both have the same relationship to their powers or their abilities which is that they don't know the extent of them and they don't know the origin of them. And the the real difference between the two of them, or or one of the really big differences between the two of them, is that Mother Abigail is very upfront with her people about, I don't know why uh, God, she describes it as God, but whatever it is that's, you know, instructing her, I don't know why that thing has chosen me to be its messenger. And I don't know anything except what I'm told, you know, like things that I haven't been told, I really, I really don't have a sense of. Whereas as flag is a great pains to never admit that there's anything that he doesn't know, right? I mean, I, I think they are just as kind of in the dark about what exactly is going on, but it's very important for Flag to maintain this facade of sort of being on top of it all. And, and you know, that, that 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 really in some way defines the difference between Mother Abigail and Flag. I guess you know, once you've got the script set up, tell us, tell, tell us about, um, you know, just getting into production. Where did you film and, and what were the challenges of, of making this epic series where you've got you know these empty city shots of cars on the highway in the first couple of episodes and and then it spirals into a more supernatural kind of effects i imagine tell us a bit about yeah. how you made the show well I, it obviously was an enormous undertaking we shot we shot primarily in in vancouver not just in vancouver we were based in vancouver but the reason we chose vancouver is that in within a you know a pretty pretty limited radius of vancouver you have essentially all the climates on earth except for real sort of arctic uh, 
like frozen tundra and you even can get there but um you even have desert near vancouver you know we we shot for i guess a couple weeks in a place called kamloops which is at the northern tip of the sonora desert it's sort of like four hour drive from vancouver itself but we wanted all these different environments so that people could be coming from all parts of the country and we wanted these enormous vistas with these you know this enormous kind of western sky that you can get in british columbia in a way that it's very hard to get uh, i don't know most most places in the united states i mean certainly you can get there if you if you're willing to shoot in the plains and and stuff like that but in terms of dressing these cityscapes and emptying them out and 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 messing them up i mean that was our production designer aaron hay and our vfx supervisor jake braver they work magic and they work incredibly well together and incredibly closely and we just we just did it i mean it, there was so much talk and meticulous planning and attention to detail and that's the only way it's really the only way to do it as the showrunner what were some of the challenges you had was it either just adapting the book itself and, and breaking up that structure or was it you know something in filming that you really had to kind of you know gave you a sleepless night maybe what were some of those things that you know were thrown at you during the show well look I, yes i mean certainly just uh, adapting it and and as you said i mean figuring out the sort of jigsaw puzzle of especially when you're you're doing it in this non-linear way kind of how you're going to fit things together and and have things resonate and where you know at, at a certain point sort of right around the end of episode four basically it, it all joins the, the, the timelines join, so it stops being nonlinear. But look, adapting Stephen King is, I actually think it, it's funny because he's obviously been adapted more than maybe anyone. But it's actually it's actually quite difficult, I find, because his books are so internal. You know, I mean, he gives you so much access to the deepest, darkest thoughts and fantasies and feelings of all of the characters. And, you know, your task as a, well, my task as a, as a showrunner is, I mean, is that you have to make all those things external and, and have them read on screen and have them be reflected in the ways that people react to things or the things that they say. And, you know, that is really fundamentally changing sort of the nature of, of what's there. And then at the same time, it's very important, certainly in a, in a book like this, that's so beloved and has so many kind of iconic pieces is very important to us to also, you know, really be faithful in the ways that we could, or in the ways that we decided were important to our source material. And I, I understand Stephen was involved himself and has written for the show. Can you tell us a bit about that? He has, I mean, I'm, I'm a little limited in terms of uh, what I can say, but he, he wrote, he wrote our last episode, uh, which is sort of a, a coda that he's been planning for decades and and even more than that frankly I mean you know he he I mean he read every draft he signed off on every director on every actor you know and Owen King his son was also he's a producer on the show and was in the writer's room with us and he's he he wrote or co-wrote a number of our episodes and so it, it definitely felt as though I mean I suppose one one way in which you know my my life our lives were were made easier is that we felt like well you know we we always have both Stephen King but but certainly the the King family keeping us honest you know if we if we were to try to go too far afield we would always get pulled back and by the way there was never a time that that happened in fact I you know I, I feel like Owen was often the one who who sort of wanted us to to deviate most from from what was there and sometimes we'd be like you know what I 
I feel like we need to sort of maintain this uh, slightly closer to what's in the book. But no, I mean, it was it was a wonderful experience. And, and frankly, I, because King is so, well, what I mean, I, I don't even know what the what the adjectives are that you use to describe him. But because he's he's had adaptations done to so many things and you know he's loved some he's hated some he's felt lukewarm about some i mean and 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 because he's he knows who he is and 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 has his confidence he's he's a very good person to work with and to adapt because he he understands i mean at a, at a certain point having seen having seen some drafts and really liked them i mean he he you know he said look you know what story you're telling you know what this is this it's i mean he acknowledges that the book is the book book and an adaptation is an adaptation but he said look this is obviously really good you're on track you're making a show for which you guys have this vision and you need to trust your instincts essentially because I I you know there were a couple things that I wanted to ask you know do you are you cool if we sort of go this way it's a little little bit of a deviation from the book but it kind of keeps the spirit of it and yeah at a certain point he just said yeah this is exactly right and it totally fits in the universe you're creating and he actually did write an email that said go on with your bad self but I I, I don't really know how to tell that story except to say I was shocked to have Stephen King write that to me <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I was going to, I was going to say, you know, he's not always liked his adaptations. So the fact that he's been on board with this one must be a, a huge uh, of yeah. support for you, you know, creatively. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's huge. I look, I, you know, it's, it's probably lame to talk about, but yes, I mean, he's so, he's so iconic. He's so iconic, so beloved and so influential, as I said, for, you know, my, my entire generation of creators of storytellers that yes, I mean, uh, adapting him, comes with a lot of pressure and the the approval from him obviously just means you know worlds benjamin cavill speaking to michael picard about new cbs all access drama the stand which is being distributed globally by cbs studios international as the role of the showrunner continues to build momentum within British television, the Writers Guild of Great Britain has produced new guidelines advising writers, producers and broadcasters on how to incorporate this position in future productions and what's expected from the person leading the creative vision of a series. TV writer Lisa Holdsworth, chair of the Guild, spoke with Michael Pickard about why this piece of work was needed and the impact it could have on productions going forward. She also looks back on 2020 and discusses how television writers have fared during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, I'm Lisa Holsworth. I'm a television writer. I'm also the chair of the Writers Guild of Great Britain. Thank you for joining us, Lisa. And, and we spoke, I think, last in, in March, right at the start of the, the first lockdown in, in the UK, discussing how the Guild was responding to the need to support writers in, in the television business here. How has um, the rest of 2020 been as we now move into the start of a new year? It's been a year of confounded expectations. I think that at the start of this we expected this to be uh, a three-month thing that we'd have to put a lot of immediate support in place not long-term support you know I think the guild reacted very quickly and very well but it, it's turned into a, a marathon when we thought it might be a, a sprint I'm unbelievably grateful to all our volunteers who run the various craft committees television theatre have obviously have had a, an enormously tough time of it uh, but also the comedy committee etc so we've just kept going and at some 
some point there will be a point to sit back and look at what we've achieved and what changes will be permanently affected upon the guild uh, i certainly don't imagine we'll ever demand that people jump on a train and come to london and sit in a room together for a meeting again zoom has been a revelation it's meant our two national committees the welsh and scottish committees um, have expanded and are doing amazing work so that's been a really positive outcome but obviously our fear now is for the long-term effects on theatre the people that don't come back unscathed on the the film industry and of course um we've got the lovely spectre of brexit to deal with and, and i think it's still unclear as to what effect that will have on the creative industries and and i guess in terms of uh, the tv landscape you know a lot of the writers i have spoken to over the past few months um, i guess in a very self-deprecating style have always joked that their lives haven't really changed as much they're still in their offices writing as, as they would have been developing new ideas so the pandemic hasn't really affected them professionally as much as uh, obviously other people but how in reality from your perspective how has it affected writers have have commissions been slower to be picked up obviously productions have been delayed maybe what is the reality on the ground for, for writers in television you know and how is that changing and improving it's a maybe very now? negative effect on on soap writers which i think a year ago i would have said were our safest constituency but the complete stopping of filming then shorter episodes etc uh, it's dialed back a lot of the incomes of those writers and, and so we will be addressing that this year and making sure that incomes come back up to the level they were pre-covid there's a bottleneck at the next level of television of existing productions you know i understand the need for safety and security amongst commissioners at the moment there's not as much money kicking about the future's still uncertain and so they will rely on their existing writers but i would like to see a commitment to making sure that newer writers are not thrown on the scrap heap because not only does that have i think a detrimental effect on british television because i think we like to see new fresh material not the same old same old it also has a very devastating effect on diversity and equality if we are genuine about improving representation in on writing teams for black and asian writers minority ethnicity and for women uh, and people with disabilities then we can't stop the work that started pre-covid we have to push through with that absolutely and and just personally you obviously you you work on uh, a discovery of witches can you just tell us a bit about your experience and and how you've been working through the pandemic on that show as the as the lead writer it's, it's been a, a really extraordinary so this was my first position as, as lead writer and executive producer on a on a tv show and and how i expected the year to go was very very different and i'm not the only person to say that so i should have spent the bulk of the summer in cardiff at the bad wolf St- uh, studios getting my feet wet finding out about production i've done it all from my attic in leeds i haven't been on a train in the best part of a year which is extraordinary for me i, I rarely went a week without doing a, a long train journey pre-covid and so i've had to do it at, at long distance i think the gains that we will make from zoom meetings and the technology the adoption of technology hopefully when we get back to normal and people are vaccinated will be tempered because i really miss being physically with the team and being on the ground we've done everything by telephone and, and luckily had an amazing script team but the filming was expensive and more long-winded because of covid we were testing our actors on a regular basis had to have a couple of shutdowns for safety but what i've been really impressed by is crews and actors taking that safety so very very seriously i think it would have been easy for for us to all pretend that it, it didn't affect us because of doctor show business but it just it just hasn't been the case and people are enormously careful watching the rushes everybody's got their masks on everybody 
everybody's being careful and it'd be nice when we don't have to do that anymore yeah that's uh hopefully not too distant uh image hopefully so um yeah that's, that's great that everything's been going well and uh yeah it does sound as though crews and, and cast as well have been remarkably resourceful and careful about making sure that they're doing things right and, and looking after everyone because obviously it takes a couple of cases and if you know everyone's then out of work aren't they so it's um it does sound that everyone has has been doing well to, to keep the, the show going so to speak and, and i guess your position as lead writer then kind of ties in with some work that the guild has been doing and announced in in november about um some new guidelines for showrunners in the uk it's obviously a term that people will be familiar with largely from the us where it's just a, a staple of the tv industry do you want to just tell us a bit about the background to that piece of work that you've been doing and maybe until now what show running in the uk has meant because even in the us when i speak to showrunners there everyone seems to have their own definition of this job and you know some people like to be on set all the time other people are showrunners but they stay in the room the writer's room so yeah tell us about the work and and british showrunning thus far i think showrunning's been a hot topic amongst television writers for for in this country for a good few years and we we'd run a few sort of sessions on it um talking about discussing the american experience plus the british experience and it was probably a term that was being misapplied left right and center so in the new guidelines we do define it it's it's a, a lead writer with considerable creative input so that includes casting speaking to heads of department that kind of thing it's not just someone who keeps an eye on the scripts and it's someone who has a lot of say in the hiring and firing of the other writers and that's where we knew through our work through the television committee a little bit of occasional abuse had come in now that can range from someone frankly just being a bit of a dick in the writer's room and throwing their weight around that's bad enough and we take bullying and harassment very very seriously but it can also be as serious as a couple of cases of fairly high level writers taking over other writers scripts right at the last minute taking their credit and by taking their credit taking their repeat fees and and their subsequent fees going forward we had a couple of cases that were highly suspicious it happens scripts get taken over it's nobody's ever happy about it but we started to be uncomfortable that some writers would be getting a financial incentive to take over the other writer scripts and we wanted to make sure that was addressed and also the general behavior of production companies towards showrunners making sure that if you are given that title that that you have access to the training and the support you need because uh, and i can speak now from my experience on discovery of witches often you're asked to make decisions that you have no experience in because of the nature of the british television industry writers are very often kept at arm's length we're often separated out to make sure we don't talk to each other and so when you start sticking writers in a room together you need to make sure that whoever's running that room has the skill set required to look after the writers make sure everybody's cared for and the script editors and to make sure that the show is the best it, they can because we don't want anybody buckling under the pressure of this because it's, it's I think it is a positive move for British television the more that writers are given creative input uh, it's the eternal frustration of, of the television writer which is they took my script and they buggered it up because I had no say in casting in Heads of Time in, I didn't get to see the design I never spoke to the director the, the, the amount of times writers never ever speak to the director and then wonder why what ends up on screen bears no relation to what was in their head so we embrace the onslaught of the rise of the writer I think it's a great thing we just want to make sure everybody's protected and everybody knows their rights and where to go when things go wrong as well yeah no absolutely I, I guess from you know in the US that position of being the overwriter 
is is quite common, isn't it? That often, you know, that I think they, they call it a pass, don't they? They'll take a pass at the scripts to make sure the voice is is consistent through. And obviously that does have bearing on, on the final script and, and obviously the financial and creative credit that that writer will then get. So it's a, it's a very interesting role. Um, from the other side of things, how, how has this been received or how have producers and broadcasters been sort of feeling with this rise of the showrunner? And, and are they receptive to your guidelines or do they still want the producer to be in some sort of creative control, a non-writing producer to have that overall control? I think there's always a bit of nervousness ceding control to the writers because it's not been our natural position in this country unless you're one of the big names up until now. And, and, and those big names have blazed a trail for us. So it's always interesting when we release another set of guidelines that sometimes we are stealing ourselves for the hand grenade to go off and for people to go, how outrageous you've overstepped. But what we tend to find is that production companies come back to us and say, thanks for this, because it creates a definition, a framework that we can work in. And we did consult with both writers who've been in writers' rooms and some big names who who run writers' rooms to talk to them about what was fair, because it is a set of guidelines, whether you're a showrunner or you're just a job in writer in the writers' room. Those guidelines cover every aspect of that way of working. So we had a little bit of pushback. We had a little bit of writers who would have liked to put their name to it, but know that their behaviour in the past may be contradicted what was said in the guidelines, which goes to show that the guidelines are necessary. I think it has been a bit like the Wild West out there for a while, and nobody's been entirely sure what, what is an overreach and what is hanging back. And so for the most part, the reaction has been enormously positive. I mean, just in terms of the writer's room, I mean, it's always been put to me that this kind of show running model and the writer's room hasn't really taken off because of the expense of running a writer's room. You know, in America, the idea of having 12 writers sitting around a large coffee table or, you know, office table with a whiteboard in front of them and they're all just chatting for, you know, six weeks before they do any writing about the show and things. It's just too expensive to, to do in Britain. Is, is that changing now? Is that something that we're moving towards or maybe not quite that that scale? There's a degree of flexibility. So I, and I think if you look at the American model, that is beginning to change as the disruptors like Netflix and Amazon are looking for shorter series. If you're on a show like, for example, Chicago Fire or something like that, where you've got to do 20 episodes across the year, you need that team coming in nine o'clock every Monday morning, beating out those ideas. That's really, we have very few shows in this country like that. We have our, our eight parties or what the Americans call a six pack. And I was once at a, a conference of international writers and then the Americans could say, we're, we're really, really jealous of your six packs. I'm like, do you know many British writers? Um, but then we realised they, they love our short series because obviously there are things that you can achieve in a short series that is too stretching in a 20 parter. So it was already happening in this country to a certain extent on shows like Ackley Bridge, I speak from experience, that had a writer's room. It was already happening to a certain extent in this country, the occasional writer's room, short form, a week there, a couple of days there. And so there was no consistency in whether people were getting paid to be there. So in America, you know, with a 20 part series, you need everybody in the room Monday to Friday, nine till five, bashing out those ideas. But for an eight part or a six part, or even a 10 part, you don't need everybody there. But we wanted to make sure that writers were being paid for the time they were there. There was also a problem with transparency because when you walk into a writer's room in America, you know what your position is. You know whether you're a writer's assistant, lead writer, there is a structure which you can work your way up from the person taking the notes to the person being the showrunner. That doesn't exist in the UK system. But we wanted to make sure that everybody in that room knew whether they were getting an episode at the end of the writer's room, whether they were there just to, as a job interview 
view, we we strongly discourage that. It's not a good place to try people out. But if you know you're walking into that room almost auditioning to be on the writing team, then that's fair enough. You have that choice. The other concern we had was the rise of writers, British writers' rooms, asking people in as cultural consultants. And so that meant people of colour, people with a disability, uh, people with unique cultural experiences being invited into the writers' room to download their experiences, but then not ending up writing an episode. And that had happened on a few shows. I think it was a case of people not realising how damaging that is to a writer, that the, the only reason you're in that room is because you're a wheelchair user or you're neuroatypical or because you're black or because you're Asian and not because you're a great writer. It was heartbreaking to hear the tales of when that had happened. And so there's a big part of our, our guidelines that avoiding that. So the things that had crept into the British system that I think were done in good faith, but without consideration, we're hoping to do away with that. Whereas the American system, I think, has a very clear structure, but not we don't necessarily have the money or time to adopt that. And I mean, just, I guess, with our rose-tinted spectacles on, I mean, what do you think are the benefits of the showrunner model and, and writers' rooms for the industry to adopt? I mean, it, I would say, speaking personally, that it's great to have that singular vision, particularly from the writer, you know, ideally the one who created the show, to see it all the way through. But also, in terms of writers' rooms, I mean, it seems to me that they're great training grounds for people to get up and, and find experience writing, hopefully, <laughs> episodes of television. Is that something you agree with? Or what are some of the other hidden advantages maybe of the system? I say a lot of writers and I've said it wasn't a training ground. It was I was there because I'm a I'm a really great writer and that's that's true for other writers. We're not suggesting that British television should cease to be a mixed economy. I still want to see Jed Mercurio's authored piece. I still want to see Peter Bowker's or Sally Wainwright's stuff. Um Sally Wainwright I, I don't think plays well with others and probably doesn't want to sit in a writer's room and that's fine. However, there are some shows where it is just too big an ask to ask one writer to pull it off and so from my personal experience there is nothing less creative than sitting in a room on your own staring at a blank screen however sitting in a room with a load of other people where there is an understanding that there's no such thing as a bad idea everybody has a voice and beating out those stories structurally is a really creative and a much quicker way of doing it and and there's a reality you hear from the big name writers I have work stacked up you know they're done until 2015 they know what they want to do and it means that if they have a really big hit series often you have to wait a really long time for it to come back or they have to put everything else on hold whereas we have an appetite for returning series in this country so those shows that can be team written means they've got a quicker turnover things can be done more efficiently I do think writers rooms are incredibly efficient at bashing things out and it means that instead of one person going episode one episode two it means you can all be working at once and passing around ideas when it goes well a writers room or a collective writing group our writing team is fantastic at, at high volume quick turnover television but at its worst it can really damage newer writers or writers with a, a lack of confidence and we want to make sure we protect those writers it's a healthy ecosystem at the moment and and, and it, like I say for, for every Jed Mercurio and, and Sally Wainwright I think we need to be bringing up newer writers and, and often a writer's room is a really good way for, for a new writer to shine if they've got great ideas and they're good at off the cuff stuff people can be really impressive obviously the two northern subs are already run like that they're just bigger writers 25 people around that table and it's everybody kicking ideas in and, and you know i would advise anybody if they can get that experience to do it because it's it will make you confident and it will make you less precious about ideas and most new writers often sit on an idea and
until it's perfectly crafted. There's no such thing as a perfectly crafted idea. And actually putting it out there and getting input can really, really help. And it's, this is just a, a, we're doing it at the beginning of the process instead of waiting until the end. Lisa Holdsworth from the Writers Guild of Great Britain, talking with Michael Pickard. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. <laughs>